But I want to begin by saying that showing up to worship is a risky thing to do. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it's true. Showing up to worship the living God is a risky thing to do, and it might just be hazardous to your health if it's done incorrectly. Just ask Nadab and Abihu when God killed them at the tabernacle. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira when God killed them in church. Because you remember, don't you, what sort of God it is that we worship? That when people in Scripture encountered the living God, they almost died? That seeing God almost killed them? That to meet the living God was a blunt force trauma to the soul that caused them to fear for their own safety? And I know, I know we're not accustomed to speaking about God in this way, but it's true. And the Bible is clear and unmistakable. Worship is the most weighty and serious and significant and sacred business in the universe. It's not unjoyful by any means, but it's also not a game. Because of that, maybe, just maybe instead of our Sunday best, maybe we should show up wearing Kevlar suits and crash helmets to the service. Maybe the ushers, if we had them, instead of offering, ha- handing out uh, offering plates, we would, they would hand out life preservers and signal flares. Maybe instead of bulletins that we give you at the front door when you come in, maybe we should have you sign a waiver and fill out a medical release form just in case. Instead of doing a liturgy, maybe we should give you safety protocols and remind you again where the exits are, just in case something happens. Instead of a welcome sign to our first-time guests, maybe we should have a sign outside that says, beware of the God, enter at your own risk. Might not be a terrible idea to have paramedics and an ambulance outside on standby just in case something happens. I understand that's ridiculous. That's exaggerated, but it does make a point, doesn't it? About something that we so oftentimes forget in our efforts to to try to make church as comfortable as possible for the consumer and the seeker. And the point is, worship of the living God is the most serious and sacred and significant business on the planet. And every once in a while, we need to be reminded of just who it is, the God that we worship. That the triune God is not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's not your peer. I mean, he is your friend by all means. He is your friend. But he is the kind of friend who caused you to exist. Who demands your allegiance. Who bought you with the blood of his son. And who determines where you will spend eternity. What that means, beloved, is that worship of the living God, matchless and supreme, is a potentially risky thing to do, which means we need to learn what it is, how God wants it done, and most of all, who is the God that we worship. This morning, that's exactly what Solomon gives us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. 
And if you know and remember anything about a book of Ecclesiastes, you know that this is not an easy book. This is a book, book of knots and riddles and profound theological challenges. The digging is hard. The text is tough. The caves are deep. And Solomon does not yield his treasures easily to the reader. And yet in the strange-sounding book called Ecclesiastes, you have to understand what this book is doing, why it exists in your Bibles. You need to know that the book of Ecclesiastes is, get this, a theological mystery novel about the meaning of life. That's what it is. It's in your Bibles to remind you, to remind you that ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction are found only in God and that everything outside of Him are merely a counterfeit. In a book like that, you understand about the meaning of life. It only makes sense that Solomon would talk about the essence of authentic worship. And here's the thing you have to understand, is that everything leading up to chapter 5, you could say, is reflective and philosophical and a little bit mysterious, but everything changes in chapter 5, verse 1. Because it's there that Solomon talks about worship. And when he does, the gloves come off and the glasses come off and he leans in real, real close and with a slight, slight quiver in his voice asks us, do you know who is the God that you worship? Because this thing called worship, this is no laughing matter. Because the God that we worship is no laughing matter. And that doesn't mean that, that worship is grim or joyless or cold or mechanical because that's not worship either. That's not worship. Worship, you understand, engages the whole soul. It is the affections and desires and cravings. It is what we love and treasure and hunger for the most. Worship is only worship when we are needy. For God, when we are desperate for God, when we are dependent on God, when we are satisfied in God, and when we are exhilarated by God, that is worship. Which means worship is not merely about what we do on a Sunday morning, but rather it is our very perceptions of what God is like. So the question is, you were created to worship. You cannot help but worship someone or something. The only question is, who or what are you worshiping? Solomon will help us this morning. He will help us, not with soft serve, low calorie, hallmark card theology that merely makes us feel good, but rather with lofty, exalted thoughts about God that make us tremble and rejoice. And so here we go. Let's learn what worship is and what worship is not. Here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text three exhortations. Three exhortations about worship to help you fulfill the reason you exist. Three exhortations about worship, authentic worship, to help you fulfill the reason why you exist. And why you exist is worship. It's a prize. God is the treasure of the soul. So exhortation number one. Number one, guard your heart and what you think about God. Guard your heart and what you think about God. Because I think it's really interesting. 
Don't you? That we are required to take a class anytime it means we're going to do something dangerous. There are welding classes, firearms classes. There, is mo there are motorcycle safety classes. There are skydiving classes. There are classes on how to fly planes. There are classes on how to operate heavy machinery. But my question is, what about a worship safety class? There's a class on that. Where's a class that teaches the finite how to approach the infinite? How the created is to approach the creator? How the unclean is to approach the holy one? Where is a class on that, I ask? That's exactly what Ecclesiastes 5 is. And again, again, any book on the meaning of life has to talk about worship and what it really means. And that is exactly what Solomon speaks of in verse 1. Look at the text. He says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than offering the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. I see it there. When Solomon talks about going to the house of God, he's talking about the temple, isn't he? And in the Old Testament, when you're talking about the temple, you're talking about where God is. And if you're talking about where God is, you're talking about worship. And worship of the Old Testament was a physical, it was a physical location, a geographical designation with an address. You remember that in the Old Testament, a special manifestation of the presence of God was located in the temple, which makes this, this the most significant piece of real estate on the entire planet. This is where the infinite God of the universe stooped down to meet with created human beings. And so Solomon says, watch your steps. Be very careful and consider what it is that you are actually doing when you go to the temple. And when he says, guard your steps, you know, you know that he's not talking about stubbing your toe, slipping on a banana peel tripping on loose stones as you head your way to the temple. Rather, he's talking about the condition of your soul. He's talking about getting your heart prepared to do just what it is that you are about to do, namely to worship the God of the universe. When you go to church, when you open up your Bible, when you pause to pray, when you do anything or go anywhere for that matter, because do you understand that God is there in the totality of his being? Do you understand that, that you need, what Solomon wants to create in you, is a profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you're standing, you're standing on holy ground because God is there. Solomon wants you to search your hearts. He wants you to examine your very souls. He wants you to scrutinize your spiritual condition to make absolutely sure that, you're, that your contemplations about God are not only doctrinally accurate, but that they cause you to tremble. In other words, Solomon wants you to know that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because we become so secular and superstitious, don't we? 
We, we constantly revert back into our old paganism. And we continually try to make God back into our own image. And when we want to commit some sin, for instance, we go inside our homes where no one can see us. And we draw the blinds, close the door, we walk down the hall, we go into our rooms, we go inside, we close the door, we shut off the lights, we lie down. And in the moment, in isolation, in the dark, in the silence, we have the audacity to think that no one can see us. But lo, there is one who sees. And he is closer to you even than your own skin. There is no such thing as a secular moment. You know that, right? Because God is real. God is there. God is everywhere. Therefore, guard your steps, Solomon says. Be very careful and consider just who it is that you are going to worship. And you know, don't you? You know what creates this God awareness on the heart. You know, don't you, what creates that, that God consciousness in the soul that never forgets that even your most private, unguarded, unseen moments that God is there in the totality of his being. You know how that gets created in our lives, don't you? And there's a name for that in the Bible. It's called reverence. It's called fearing God. And that doesn't mean scared of God. It doesn't mean that. It means that God is so real to you that who he is shapes who you are in what you do in your most private, secret, unguarded moments when no one can see you except God. My question is, how do we get there? How do we get to that place in our lives? Because you have to get there. We have to get there. That is the wellspring of our holiness and our hope and our courage and our perseverance. And the only way to get there in our lives is if the word of God makes an impression on you. That's exactly where Solomon goes. Look what he says in verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Here it is. And draw near to hear rather than offering the sacrifice of fools. Very interesting. If worship is about drawing near to hear, and it is, then that implies that there is something to be heard, and there is something to be heard, namely what God has to say in his word. Because that's what Solomon means. Because you understand, don't you, that Old Testament worship, it was not merely about sacrifices presented, but it was about the scriptures proclaimed. You read the Torah, you read the, you read the Pentateuch carefully, and you see that the prophets and the priests and the scribes and even the king of Israel himself had as one of their jobs the perpetual proclamation of the word of God, the exposition of the word of God. Why? Because they understood that what this book is is the presence of Yahweh himself. They understood that God led his people. He shepherded his people. He rebuked his people. He, he gave hope to his people. He transformed his people through the proclamation of the word of God. Because this isn't just some piece of literature. This is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. And that if you want to hear God speak, then all you need to do is read holy scripture 
I believe Solomon wanted to create a people who went hard after God. Who had an insatiable appetite to feast their souls on the banquet of Holy Scripture. If you're going to worship, Solomon says, if you're going to really worship, you had better come hungry. You had better come needy, that old paradigm of don't come to get, come to give. Well, that just depends on what you mean. You need to come here to get, to hear from the living God. You must come on a Sunday morning like a patient on an operating table, ready to be worked on by the sacred scalpel of Holy Scripture. You need to come to hear God speak, Solomon says, and not offer the sacrifice of fools. Which is interesting, isn't it? Even fools go to worship. Fools worship. Fools sing. Fools offer sacrifices. Fools show up to church. And Solomon calls it evil. And the reason it is, is because when fools show up, it's not to worship God. It's to use God as a means to get what they really want. The fool's worship is that which wants forgiveness but has no intention of killing the sin that needs to be forgiven. The fool's worship, the fool shows up and he sings the songs and he listens to the word of God proclaimed, but at the end of the day, he has zero interest in changing how he actually lives his life. The fool's worship wants an emotional thrill and a mystical experience, but they have zero interest in actually submitting their lives to the word of God. The fool's worship is present in person, but their heart is far away from God, daydreaming about all the things they would rather do than being here. A fool's worship is nothing more than cosmic bribery. Push button, vending machine, superficiality that merely sees God as a means to get what they really desire, and it's not God. Let me say one more thing about this. What's missing in the worship of fools is that weak need face to the ground, soul trembling hunger for God as the treasure of the soul. It's all just cultural, and it's all just fake. My question is, do you see any of that in your life? Do you offer the sacrifice of fools? Do you treat God as a means to something else, to get what you really want? I'm not asking if you sometimes struggle to keep focused on a Sunday morning when reading your Bible. I'm asking, do you have authentic, affectionate passion and hunger for God? Because, listen very carefully, how that authentic hunger and passion for God is manifested, how what that looks like is how you feel about and respond to the word of God. You understand that, right? What I mean is the only, only 
objective, verifiable way to evaluate authentic worship and faith is not our feelings or our emotions nor even our private experiences, but the quality of our connection to Holy Scripture. The question is, church, throughout the week and on Sunday, do you draw near to hear God speak in his holy word? Do you understand that when you wake up every single morning that you wake up and when you come here on a Sunday morning that what you need most in your life is to hear what the living God has to say in his word? Do you see in your life gradually increasing reverence and submission to the word of God as the supreme authority and treasure of your life? Because that right there is the mark of true faith and worship and discipleship. That's exhortation number one. Guard your heart in what you think about God. Exhortation number two. Number two. Watch your mouth and what you say to God. Watch your mouth and what you say to God. When I was a kid, I remember my dad telling me that if you ever joked about killing the president, the government would find out about it, and they would find you, and they would come for you, and they would arrest you, and they would put you in prison for life. I didn't know what he meant by that. I thought he meant that, I thought he, you know, I didn't realize that he meant if you say it on TV or say it in public or crowded rooms or online or something like that. I, I didn't know exactly what he meant, and I took it so serious that I remember being so terrified by that that I remember I could not bring myself to whisper about killing the president in private as a joke. I, I, as a kid, I could not bring myself to whisper about killing the president because who the government was was so terrifying to me that it caused me to watch my mouth even in secret, which is actually probably not a bad idea today, to be totally honest. But watching your mouth before God in worship is exactly what Solomon says. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, Do not be hasty in word, and let not your heart be quick to bring forth a matter before God, because God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes with many cares, and the voice of the fool with many words. You can tell if Solomon's talking about worship here, and he is, you can tell that he's describing prayer, isn't he? He's talking about prayer here. That almost unbelievable act of worship where a finite created being approaches the God who has more power than 10,000 neutron bombs. Because that's exactly what prayer is. And you see, we just pray and we talk about prayer and we discuss prayer and we just assume that prayer should be a, a daily part of our lives and it totally should be. But you see, Solomon wants to pump the brakes just a little bit when it comes to prayer. Not for the purpose of getting us to pray less, but to pause and consider very carefully who it is, the one to whom we pray and what it means to pray to him. 
And notice there in verse 2, Solomon has two prohibitions when it comes to prayer. Two prohibitions when it comes to prayer. Things you should not do. He says, uh, do not be hasty in your mouth, number one. Number two, and let not your heart be quick to bring forth a matter before God. Why? For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Don't be hasty in words, Solomon says. Literally, do not be hasty with your mouth. Meaning what? Meaning not that you have to be hesitant or timid or cowardly or, or, or shy when talking to God in prayer. That, that's not what he's saying. I mean, especially when you consider Hebrews 4.16 tells us to approach the throne of grace with boldness. That we may receive grace and fi- find mercy to help in time of need. You see, as blood-bought believers on this side of the cross, we can and we should and we must be bold. We must be. The right to approach the living God in prayer was bought for us by the blood of the Son of God. And so we must, we can, we should be bold. And yet you would agree, would you not, that there is a difference, there is a marked, distinct difference between being bold and being brash. That there is a difference, a profound, marked, distinct difference between being passionate in prayer and being presumptuous. Because that's exactly what he means. Rather, what Solomon means by being hasty, listen carefully. He's talking about rushed, hurried, flippant, thoughtless prayer. By hasty, he's talking about impulsive and rash and impetuous prayers, a kind of cavalier approach to God that barges in and starts making all sorts of demands on him, but never once considering that he is the one who holds the universe into being by the word of his power. Hasty prayer is not only the kind that goes through the motions, speeds through a list, and checks a box, but it is also the kind of prayer that is pushy and demanding and forgets that even the angels closest to his throne will not look directly upon him and shield their eyes from his splendor. Bottom line, Solomon wants wants to know, do you actually pray like God is real and that God is there and that he is listening and that he is a person and that he is a father and that he is the greatest treasure in the universe? Do you pray like that? That's what he wants to know. And Solomon's not saying that the way that you pray has to be perfect or profound or polished. He's just saying that one thing it can never be is hasty. Are you hasty with God in prayer? The second prohibition, what also you should not do, not only should you not be hasty, but notice what he says, and let not your heart be quick to bring forth a matter before God. And you can see here how Solomon goes from the mouth to the heart. See that? And why he does that, it's very clever, is because there is a direct connection between our mouths and our hearts, isn't there? Those two things are inseparably entwined. The true desires of your soul are most clearly displayed in the way that you pray or the way that you do not pray. 
And when he says to not bring up a matter before God, he, he doesn't mean that you have to be hesitant or fearful as if God's going to be really irritated if you ask him for something. No, Christ was clear in Matthew chapter 7. You must ask. You must seek. You must knock. You must be bold in prayer. You must be dependent in prayer. You must, you must plead with God. You must be persistent with God. He is glorified by your needy dependence in prayer. That must be said. But that doesn't mean that the first thing that comes into your mind is the thing that you should ask for, is it? That doesn't mean that we should use prayer as an instrument of idolatry to get things that we want more than God. What he's saying is don't just barge in and don't just start making all these demands on God as if he only exists to cater to your whims or to your appetites like he's some cosmic genie or some heavenly Santa Claus that you see once a year but with whom you have no relationship. Because when we use prayer to get what we want more than God, we mutilate the very reason why prayer exists. And notice there in verse 2, notice very carefully, notice what it is theologically that what we must keep in mind that preserves the purpose of prayer. Look what he says. Do not be hasty to bring up a matter before God. Why? Because God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You see the logic? Don't just barge in and start making demands upon God like he's some sort of waitress or some customer service representative. No, you need to see that God has absolute unrivaled supremacy over everything. He is in heaven heaven, which does not refer so much to his distance from us so much as it refers to his supremacy over us. This is his transcendence. He is lofty. He is exalted. He is matchless. He is supreme. And here we are on the earth, created, temporal, finite, living on one planet in the corner of a galaxy in a universe in which there are millions and millions of other planets and galaxies. And that doesn't mean that prayer doesn't matter, but it does mean that our prayer should be intentional. I mean, do you realize who it is that you are praying to? I mean, the supremacy of God just changes everything, doesn't it? And Solomon's application to the supremacy of God in our prayer lives is very simple, very practical, very profound. Therefore, he says, let your words be few. Anyone ever tell you to pray less? It's not really what he's after. He's not so much referring to the, to the quantity of your words, but rather the intentionality of your words. The authenticity of your words. I mean, I mean, Solomon's clear objective is to alter and change the way that we pray, is it not? That the cure, the cure for cold-hearted, mind-wandering prayer that is pushy and demanding or casual or cavalier is to be gripped by the towering majesty of God. 
And you understand, don't you? This is very important. You understand, do you not, that hasty prayer is the result of hasty reading or no reading at all? And by that I mean the reading of Holy Scripture. What I mean is we always, 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 without any exception, always pray our theology. Our view of God is displayed in the way that we pray. Our prayers will only be as passionate as our view of God is profound. Our prayers will only be as delightful as our view of God is deep. And so therefore, the secret to all of our prayer problems and struggles without exception, listen carefully, is the careful, unrushed, contemplation of who God is from the pages of Holy Scripture. That's it. If you want authentic, dependent, passionate prayer, you must get your soul staggered by the supremacy of who God is. Go to Exodus 34. Go to Isaiah 6. Go to Isaiah 40. Go to Jeremiah 10. Go to Ezekiel 1. Go to Romans 9. Go to Revelation 1 and spend a month there. I'm serious. In reading and reading and meditating and getting your mind blown by the majesty of God. Because mark my words, over time it will begin to change the way that you pray. And there's two changes in particular that Solomon is especially concerned about. Look what he says in verse 3. Verse 3. Hey, it's a strange verse. Solomon is a very unusual in his writing and what he asserts and what he says. He says, For the dream comes with many cares and the voice of the fool with many words. I know that seems random. And that doesn't seem like it has anything to do with prayer, but trust me, it does. You see, the point is very practical. The, vo- the, the point is profound. He just said, did he not, that you need to let your words be few in light of the supremacy of God. In other words, in other words, let your words be intentional and very carefully chosen. But why? Verse 3, because the dream comes with many cares? <laughs> what? Dreams meaning what? Not the kind you have at night, but the kind that you have during the day. He's talking about daydreams. Fantasies. Big plans that people make for their lives. The plans to be rich or married or successful or happy or famous, he means the thing, by dreams, he means the things other than God that people bank on to fulfill the deepest cravings of their soul. And the problem with things that we choose other than God is that they come with many cares. They come with burdens. They weigh upon the soul. Meaning the things to which we look other than God to fulfill us make us fearful and anxious and burdened, do they not? Have you ever benefited from anything in your life that you sought instead of God? Did not not that just wreak havoc in your very soul? That's exactly what he's talking about. And the question is, do you have anything like that in your life? 
anything that deep down you are pursuing perhaps instead of or in the place of God? That you want more than God? Is there anything in your life encroaching upon the sacred ground of your soul to be reserved for Jesus Christ alone? Because here's the point. Here's the connection. When we get fearful and anxious for things other than God, we then turn prayer into an instrument of idolatry. And his point is, what delivers us from abusing the purpose of prayer is none other than the supremacy of God. That's his point. In other words, in other words, when God is prized as supreme, you will not seek things other than him to take his place. When you are content in God, the purpose of prayer is secure. That's what he means. And yet there's a second, a second change that the supremacy of God makes to our prayer lives. Look what he says. Solomon says, the dream comes with many cares and the voice of the fool with many words. Which is interesting, isn't it? Even fools have a prayer life. Even, even fools pray to God. And yet the way they pray, Solomon says, comes with many words. Many words, which by itself is not a problem. The, the, the words are not a problem. I mean, we should pray a lot and often and as we go throughout our day, which necessitates the use of lots and lots of words, right? That's not the problem in and of itself. The point is, fools say so much but they really say so very little. Or perhaps you could put it this way, fools might pray much, but what they really pray is very little. In other words, I think what he means is fools think that by their many words they will be heard. They recite their lists. They've got their cute prayer cliches. They've got their nice little platitudes and formulas. They go through the motions. They've got their canned things and phrases and their pious-sounding things that they repeat again and again and again. And they think that when they have prayed, they have done something pious and profound. But what God really cares about is the quality of those words, the intentionality of those words, the urgency of those words, the reality of those words. Quantity too, it's both and, not either or, but also especially the quality. And his point is very simply, don't miss this. The supremacy of God produces sincerity in prayer. When you view God as majestic, your prayers to him will be authentic. That's his point. And I understand this, this hits below the belt. But the reality is we can say whatever we want about ourselves and we can present whatever version we want of ourselves to people in public. But the reality is, is that who we are is who we really are on our knees before God in prayer. And, and yet if, if prayer is a struggle for you, or even non-existent for you, you need to know there is a solution. There is help for you. There is hope for you. The secret, seriously, the secret to pleasurable, passionate, and persistent prayer, and you know exactly what I'm going to say, don't you? 
is meditation on holy scripture. You knew I was going to say that, but it doesn't make it any less true. That's the secret. Listen very carefully. The fires of worship and prayer are produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, nailed it when he said, the reason why our prayers are cold is because they are not first warmed by the fires of meditation. He is exactly right. You understand that the one who meditates well prays well. The one who meditates much prays much. Because that is because worship and prayer is produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth, which brings us to exhortation number three. Number three, watch what you promise and what you vow to God. Watch what you promise and what you vow to God. You know, in every wedding I've ever done, Before the bride and groom say their vows to one another, I remind them that what they are about to do in saying their vows is literally of eternal significance. It is. I always tell the the soon-to-be-married couple that, that these vows, these are not just a formality that gets you to the kissing part. Rather, these vows mean everything. These vows literally mean everything. These are what makes you married. These are non-negotiable, irrevocable commitments that you are making to one another before the God of the universe. And once you make them, you cannot unmake them. Which means the vows and commitments and promises to people, let alone to God, are really serious business. It's exactly where Solomon goes. Look at verse 4. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it, for there is no pleasure in fools. What you vow, repay. Now you need to know, that comes straight out of Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. Almost word for word. It says, when you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay to fulfill it, for Yahweh your God shall require it from your hand, and it will be sin for you if you don't fulfill it. And so everyone in Israel knew exactly what Solomon is talking about. This is, this is normal. This is orthodox worship in the Old Testament. And strange, foreign though it may sound to us, vows were just an everyday part of Old Testament worship. And hard though it may to believe, vows are also a part of New Testament worship as well. I mean, you might not think you make vows to God, but trust me, you do. And you have. For instance, have you ever told God in prayer or through the words of a song that you will follow him or serve him or trust him and never leave him? Have you ever said that to God? Did you not say in some form at your conversion that your life was Christ's to do with as he pleased? Have you ever told God that you will never do this or that thing again? I mean, no matter how you slice it, you have made a promise. You have made a vow. Which means what Solomon has to say is profoundly relevant for you. Verse 4 again, when you make a vow to God, you you shall not delay to fulfill it. 
That's very interesting. I, I think it's important to remember that, that you don't actually have to make vows. Those are done voluntarily. No one's going to put a gun to your head and force you to make one. But just know that as soon as you do, you are thus obligated to keep it. And notice what Solomon says. Not just to keep it, but do not delay in keeping it. This isn't some payment plan. This isn't layaway. We're at our convenience. When we get around to it, we fulfill the thing that we said we would do. No, that's, that's not how it works. You make a promise to God, you had better pay up. Why? What, what reason does Solomon give? Look at verse 4. Do not delay to fulfill it. Why? For there is no pleasure in fools. That's interesting, isn't it? Fools have occurred three times already. Fools offer sacrifices. Fools pray. And fools make vows. <laughs> interesting. And yet, what kind, of, what kind of vows do fools make? Ones they can't keep. Ones they have no intention of keeping. And I think this provokes the question, doesn't it? And this is pretty on the nose. But do you have any broken vows, pledges, or commitments, or promises in your life to God? What I mean is, are there glaring issues of unrepentant sin uh, do, do you see habits and patterns of sin in your life that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify? That's the issue. Because with all of our talk about Christianity being a relationship, uh, I mean, do we think that the words we say to God and the promises that we make to him don't actually matter? I mean, is that how a relationship works? I mean, isn't it in a relationship that the person to whom we make a promise, they expect to fulfill what we have promised? Isn't that how it works? I mean, do we think that God has lower standards than people? And so you see what Solomon is trying to do. He is on a mission to exterminate all pretentious, half-hearted, superficial religiosity. He wants us to see that what lies behind our phony, lukewarm, imitation worship, our puny, small-minded views of God that do not cause us to tremble. And the vow is so serious that Solomon says, verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not fulfill what you vowed. You have the right to remain silent. If anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, you don't have to make vows, but just remember that as soon as you do, you had better pay up. I mean, the point is, what we say to God matters. That's the point. Because God is real. God is there. Worship is not a game. God is not a toy. That's what he wants for us. And yet he's still not done. Look what he says in verse 6. Such a strange sounding verse at first. Still talking about vows, by the way, verse 6. He says, let not your mouth lead your body into sin. Meaning what? And do not say before a messenger, it is a mistake. For why should God be angry because of your voice? And why should he destroy the work of your hands. I know that sounds strange, but I think Solomon is giving us an illustration to understand vows a little bit better. When you make a vow or a pledge or some sort of promise and someone shows up to your house to get what you owe them, you don't get in the moment to make an excuse, right? 
It doesn't work to tell the bank or whoever, well, this is all a mistake. Well, I didn't actually mean that. I, wasn't, I didn't really mean that. I, I didn't mean for sure. I only meant maybe. And that does not work. The point is, the point is, the point is not, well, here's the thing. His point is, if breaking vows makes people mad, how does God feel about it? Because look what he says at the end of verse 6. Why should God be angry because of your voice? And why should he destroy the work of your hands? Now, understand this. Listen very carefully. The point is not that God isn't gracious or patient with us. He totally is. The point is not that God doesn't forgive our failures and sins because he totally does. The point is that God does not deal in imprecision. God does not deal in the gray, in the ambiguous. God has no tolerance for disingenuine promises. He hates flattery and presumption and duplicity and half-hearted emotional vows that we never intended to keep. Better that you should not vow than to vow and not keep what you vowed. His point is God is real. What you say in God and through the words of a song matters to God. And we're almost done. But you see, all what this does is raise, at least for Solomon, a very fundamental question. And the question is, what is authentic worship? And how is it produced in the soul? That's the question. That's that's the question that Solomon is implicitly asking and that he is about to answer. What is authentic worship really And how is it produced in the soul? That's the question. Because you might remember the worship wars from the 1980s. You remember those? It was a little before my time. I don't remember, but I heard about it. The worship wars. When churches fought over traditional versus contemporary. Hymns versus praise choruses. If drums and electric guitars should be allowed in church. And it really isn't totally honest to call that the worship wars because what that really was was the preference wars. It was really about people's opinions, preferences, cultural sacred cows, and it totally missed the point. But Solomon, the inspired writer of Scripture, does not miss the point because in verse 7, the final verse, he drills down past all the preferences, past all the opinions, past all the cultural sacred cows, and he drills into what the essence of what authentic worship is and how it's produced. Notice what he says. Here's what worship is not, and here's what worship is. He says, for the many dreams and many words are futility or vanity, but rather God is the one you must fear. Now, I know that seemed kind of cryptic. And, it, and, it, and it's a proverb, and it's Hebrew poetry, and it's meant to be a little mysterious, but can you see the difference between real and fake worship? What worship is not is many dreams and many words. Do you see that? That's not worship. 
That's not worship. He's saying what worship is not. It is not many dreams and many words. Many dreams meaning what? Meaning, again, daydreams. He means mystical, devotional, non-theological thoughts that make us feel good but have no substance. That is not worship. Neither is worship many words. Meaning, a stream of pious phrases that just go through the motions. Thoughtless repetition of words like a magic spell. That is not worship. It's not. In fact, what does Solomon say? He says it is futility, it is empty, it is vanity, it is meaningless, it is worthless, it has no value, it has no substance. God doesn't care about any of that. And so Solomon, help us, help us. What is authentic worship and how is it produced in the soul? And yet I'm afraid that Solomon's answer to the question is quite unpalatable to most people who sit in churches today. But it's only unpalatable to them because they do not know what it means to tremble before God as the treasure of their souls. It's only unpalatable to them because they have not tasted the raw, delicious terror of the God who never had a beginning. It's only unpalatable to them because they have not yet grasped the towering majesty of God, the Himalayan heights of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. It is only unpalatable to them because they do not see that the essence of authentic worship is to see and savor the triune God for the treasure that he is. And that is exactly what the Bible means by fearing God. And that is the answer. That is the essence of authentic worship. That is how worship is produced in the soul. We be staggered by the Himalayan heights of who God is, and it causes us to see our finitude, our smallness in comparison. We see his towering majesty. And whatever sort of awe or reverence or trembling that you have in your soul, that is fearing God. And that, he says, is worship. It's not candles or robes or chanting or atmosphere or lighting or buildings or altars or cathedrals or traditions or mood or ambiance or yelling or shouting or streamers or dancing. No, the essence of authentic worship is to tremble before God as the treasure of your soul. Church, the question is, is that how you feel about God? Is that how you think about God? Do you tremble before him as the treasure of your soul? Are you truly a worshiper of him? Because the truth of the matter is, you might not know God at all. Perhaps you might still be an enemy of this God because you are estranged from him because you still languish in your sin and unbelief. 
And if that's you, you should be afraid of God. And yet you should be staggered that God in his infinite sovereign mercy kept you alive another day to hear again the gospel of his son who came to the very planet that he created to save the very people who sinned against him to take the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit do you hear this and and you understand His death was not just a kind gesture. This was not just a a martyr's death. This was a substitution. It was a sin-bearing sacrifice. And should you repent and believe, should you yield to God in thirsty submission and faith, in that moment, God will transfer all of the salvation blessings that Christ purchased into your bankrupt spiritual bank account. In other words, you will become a worshiper. And so if you are estranged from the Lord Jesus Christ right now, no games, stop sitting on the fence, shrugging your shoulders like a good agnostic, hedging your bets. Today might be the last day you hear the gospel. Today is the day to yield in thirsty submission and faith because worship, Solomon has made this plain as day, is the most serious and significant sacred and superb and supreme and satisfying business in the universe. Let's pray. Almighty God, it feels preposterous to speak to you only because of who you are, never beginning, never ending, and here we are, created, finite, unclean on our own, and yet and yet, that is exactly why you sent your son to bridge the unbridgeable, to gap the ungappable, to reconcile the irreconcilable. Oh, Lord, we pause, and we do ask that you would help us to worship differently, to worship better, that you would help us to fight the fog of our minds and the clutter of our souls, and you would help us to take you serious, that your word would do a massive, transforming, life-changing effect in us so that we worship in the way that your word describes. And that is what the world needs from us most. Lord, help us to do that. And it's in the mighty name of your Son that we